So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Acts chapter 20. We're going to finish off chapter 20. Last week we made it all the way to verse 13 or 12, and now we're going to pick up in verse 13. And our verses today are sort of a transitional verse. That's kind of what's preparing Paul as he's heading to what's next in Jerusalem and then on his way to Rome. And what we see is that Paul, we get a glimpse of Paul's final face-to-face words with the elders at Ephesus and a charge that he gave him, a sincere charge of how they should live, how they should lead the church, but also how we should live faithful unto God. And and as we're seeing is over the last couple weeks as Paul has kind of made up his mind by the Spirit's prompting that he's heading to Rome. But before he gets there, he's going to make a couple stops, Jerusalem being one of the main stops because he's taking up an offering to bring it to uh, Rome, uh, sorry, to Jerusalem. And then he's going to go on his way to Rome, continuing on. And what we're seeing here is just one of those stops along the way. And what we're kind of seeing is this idea that I like to call coaching, is this idea that Paul is now tying up some loose ends. I think Paul realizes that he's not going to be around these guys much longer, and he kind of wants to coach them on, hey, this is your church now. You're leading this church. If you watch the natural progression in church history, it goes from the apostles, and they hand the same authority other than the authority to write scripture down to the elders. Elders are very, very important. And that's what we're seeing here is this transition of power in a sense. He's coaching them how to lead their church, how to lead their people, how to point them to Jesus. And I think he's doing this. This is just my speculation. Don't take this as truth. But I think Paul has a sense in his spirit that as he gets closer to Rome, it's probably going to be the end of his life or the end of his traveling ministry, at least. I don't know. It's speculation, but we see a lot of this coaching, this tying up of loose ends as he heads to Rome. Maybe he was just planning to stay in Rome for the rest of his life. I am not sure. But with that all in mind, let's pick up in verse 13 of Acts chapter 20. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. Sorry, last one. And when he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went to Mytilena. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite to Chisos. And the next day, we touched at Samos. And the next day after that, we went to uh, Miltus, Miltus, however you want to say that. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now for Miltus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So again, we're at this part of Acts where we're going to get a lot of travel log information. What are they doing? Where are they going? Who are they seeing? But one thing I want to point out is that verse 16, we see this thing, uh, Paul saying that he decided to sail past Ephesus. He just decided to go past. And this wasn't a fly by the seam of his pants decision. He didn't see, hey, next left turn, you can head into Ephesus. And he's like, yeah, I don't feel like going there. This, the author of Acts, which is Luke, is trying to portray to us, the readers of Acts, 
of Paul's determination to his destination. He is feeling, he's convinced that God has him moving towards Rome and he wants to get there. But first, he has a date in mind. He wants to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. This was a predetermined decision. He had already made up his mind. Before we get there, I'm not going to Ephesus. I don't want to spend any time in Asia. This was a predetermined thought. And some of you probably travel this way. If you're anything like me or Paul, you've already made about your mind. These are the stops we're going to and we're not going anywhere else. And the moment anyone suggests any other type of destination, you get angry, right? Uh, because you've planned this out. You've thought this out. And I think it's important not that we just get our travel advice from Paul, but also that it shows us the determination that he had, that he had, that he was going to, to, to head to Jerusalem to bring this offering for Pentecost. And then in verse 17, he stops in this city called uh, Miltus, uh, which is about 30 miles from Ephesus. And there he sends word to the elders of Ephesus saying, I need you to come here and speak to me. Uh, he didn't really want to stop in Ephesus because we all know that friend that we have or that neighbor. You know if you see them or go into their house you're there for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour. Like, I know if I stop at Candace's house, I'm not getting out of there under an hour, okay? So uh, you're stuck. So he's like, I don't want to get stuck in Ephesus. I'll be here for months or a year. So I'm going to have them come and meet me at this neutral location. And who is he calling? You see, the Greek New Testament, we see a lot of different words used through these people. Sometimes we see the word elder. Sometimes we see the word bishop. Sometimes we also see the word overseer describe these group of people. And essentially, if we're going to contextualize this into modern day language, Paul is calling the pastors of Ephesus to come and meet him. He needs to bring the pastors of these churches to deliver a message to them. And that's the audience that we, he is trying to communicate to. And I'm going to be honest with you. When I came to these verses, I, I wrestled with, this is a, a, a charge for elders of the church, but what can we make this say to us? And this is the tension I had. How am I going to figure out how to make this applicable to the everyday Christian and not just to the ones who are serving in the office of overseer. And we're going to understand right from the get-go that this is a different audience. But I do think there are some principles for godly living that both elder can hold, but also every Christian must hold as well. And we learn this from his message, from his speech that he gives to these elders, these pastors of Ephesus. And the first principle is this. It's the second point of the day, but the first principle is that we would serve with humility. Let's read verses 18 to 19. It says, and when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. So they all come to Paul and they all gather around Paul and Paul begins to start telling a story. It's kind of like uh, when you sit around a campfire. Campfires always uh, invoke wonderful stories. Some of the best stories are told around a, 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 a campfire as you're staring off into the dancing flames. And just imagine the stories that Paul could fill his listeners' ears with. He's been to jail. He's been persecuted. He's been beaten. He's been stoned pretty 
much they thought to death. And then they dragged him outside of the city and he, hey, he's all better. And he gets back up and walks back in. He's going to have shipwrecks coming up and all these things. Just imagine the stories that Paul could share. He could one up all of our stories put together. But what we see is that as he's serving the Lord, he's also pointing them and through his suffering that he is serving the Lord with humility. And he uses this word, let's break down this sentence a little bit, that I serve the Lord with humility. And let's start with the first word, serve. This is a really important word in the New Testament. It's, it, this, Paul uses this word a lot, and he also uses this word to describe himself, saying that he is a servant of God. But the connotation of this word goes far beyond servanthood. It literally means to be controlled by or mastered by someone else. And so what Paul is saying when he says, I am a servant of the Lord, he's literally saying that I am controlled by God, not by man, not by government, but by God. And God controls me, God leads me, God influences me, and God directs me. And it's a simple statement of identity that he's making. And he cuts to the heart of a key life question that you and I will always have is who is in charge? Who's in charge of you today? Who is your master? Who is your boss? Who controls you today? This is the question for the Ephesian pastors, but this is also an important question for you and I. Who's in charge of your life today? Because it even goes as far as to why we sin. Because who's mastering you? Who are you mastered by? Are you mastered by your old man? Because the Bible says your old man's dead. So the only way your old man has power over you is if you give it to him. Because he's dead. So are you being mastered by your old man or woman? Because they're dead. They shouldn't have control. Your flesh will always want to be in charge. But remember this. Jesus has already won the war over flesh. He rose again bodily. And you are fighting now from victory and not, from, not for victory. The war has already been won. So God is saying, I want you to submit to me. I want you to serve me. I want you to acknowledge me and allow me to control you. Allow me to master you. And Paul understood that. And he lived that out in front of others. But the question is, do you and I understand that? Do you and I live out that question? Just reflect on that for a moment. Who controls you? I think the Sunday school answer that we all want to say is, well, of course, God. That's the good Christian Baptist answer to say, right? God controls me. But let's take that a step further to application. Do you consult God with the decisions of your life? Do you go to God when you make big decisions and even small decisions? When's the last time you prayed to God before selling or buying your car? When's the last time you prayed to God about buying a new home or moving to see if it was in his will, or are you just becoming bored with your stuff? Do you consult God with your life decisions? Do you involve God in the process? Or do you just step away and do it your way? Because I know best. I know best. Because most of the time, we cause unnecessary pain and suffering in our lives because of the ramifications of our decisions. That if we maybe just stopped, and we spent some time in prayer, consulted God, and even hey, this is a cool idea, came to your Christian brothers and sisters that you have fellowship with and consult them to discern the will of God for your life, just maybe you might avoid some unnecessary pain in your life. 
Paul understood the importance of this concept of control. And he goes on further to say, I have served God with humility. Because I think Paul understands that humility is a trait that begins to grow in a life of someone who is submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. To serve Christ is to be humble. When you serve Christ, you will be humble and humility will grow more and more in you. Philippians 2, 1 to 3 reinforces this. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy being the, the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, here it is, do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in what? Humility. Count others, here it is, more significant than yourself. Well, that's easier said than done, right? So there's this challenge for Paul that we serve the Lord. We're controlled by him, and that's evidenced by our humility growing in our lives. The second principle, which is the third point of the day, is that we learn that Paul is setting an example for us to stand firm on the truth of God. And you who are in this room who are elders as well, you can apply this to your eldership as well, that you stand firm on the truth of God. Let's read verses 20 to 23. And we kind of left off right in the middle of Paul's uh, lengthy discussion, so it's going to be a little awkward picking this up. But verse 20 says, How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. Imagine having the Holy Spirit tell you, that everywhere you go, you're going to be in prison and have some affliction. Oh, thanks, Lord. Where, where's my purpose-driven life, right? Uh, so we get this neat glimpse in how Paul does ministry in verse 20. He both communicated the gospel in public, but he also went house to house preaching it as well. And now don't think of what I do when I come and visit you in your house and do pastoral visits. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is that the churches of this time actually met in homes. So there were many, many house churches in Ephesus and everywhere else, and each house church likely had their own elder, their own pastor. It was a plurality of elders, many elders that were leading, and they would take turns of teaching and, and shepherding and whatnot. And so this is what he's talking about, is that I went to house church after house church, and I preached the gospel because there was no large church buildings at this time. There were just many houses, uh, house churches making up the church. And Paul is commending and urging and encouraging them to stand firm on the truth in these churches. And he uses his own life as an example by saying, hey, I've committed to preach the gospel in public and in private and in your houses. And I've also committed to preach it to the Jews and the Gentiles. Why? Because God is the God of all things. God is above all. All. And Paul is emphasizing that the truth of the gospel, and he basically makes this bold statement that the gospel is both inclusive and exclusive all at the same time. So what does that mean? First of all, it's inclusive because all may come to Jesus through faith. But it's exclusive by 
Only salvation is found through Jesus and nowhere else. Nothing else. Nothing else can save you. You can't go to any other quote-unquote small G God of these false religions that fill our town and fill our world and expect to go to heaven. They're false. They're deaf, dumb, and mute. They can't hear you. As Elijah would say, maybe they're on the bathroom. Maybe they can't hear you. They're busy. They've fallen asleep. It's only through the shed blood of Jesus that you are saved. Any of you sitting in this room or watching online, you will not be saved through Muhammad, through Allah, through, uh, through Buddha, anyone, but through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's the Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus of the Mormons, not the Jesus of the Jehovah Witnesses, but the Jesus of the Bible. Amen? Acts 4.12 reinforces this. He says, there is no salvation no one, and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, but through the name of Jesus. Paul's message was simple. And I want us to notice here in verse 21 that he really summarizes his whole message with two words, and that is repent and believe, or he uses faith. And if I were to show you, pull out a loony, and I were to show you a loony with no context, all you good Canadians in here, and I were to show you on this one side of the loony this lovely portrait of the queen, right? And then on the other side, we have this lovely portrait of a loon. That's why we call it a loony, right? So if I were to just show you this portrait of the queen, how much would you think this is worth? It's not a trick question. If you know what a loony is, how much would you think this is worth? A dollar. <laughs> now, yeah, with inflation. Yeah. Um, now, if I were to just show you the picture of the loon in this nice brown color, what, how much would you think this is worth? A dollar, right? It's one coin, but two sides. And both sides are equal in value. And that's the same concept of repenting and believing. There's not one that is more important than the other. They're the same coin. Just two different sides, but they are equal in value. And Paul is making note of this in verse 21, that we should pull from this, that in the verses of repentance and believing that they're inseparable. You can't separate them. They are the same thing. But let's talk about these two words because they're big words. And if you're not raised in church, you might not know what they mean. And if you are raised in church, you might have a flawed understanding of what they are. Repentance is often described as a change of heart and a turning from my old way to a new life. And yes, that is a good foundation and that's great. But let's just pull that thread a little bit more and get a better understanding. Repentance is turning my heart towards God. It's this change of mind and it consists of this. Our souls turning from forgetfulness of God in everyday life to being thoughtful towards God in everyday life. That you're consulting God in everyday life. It's turning from indifference to God's claims of his word to becoming uh, considerate, considering it, to loving it, to pouring over his claims. It's turning from unwillingness of his control to perfect readiness to yield everything to him. It's repentance. And the flip side of the coin is belief, or it's faith, whatever you want to call it. Repentance should cause me to grieve my sin, and then faith helps me reinforce the truth that there is no sin that is too great that God can't forgive. 
There is nobody too far gone that God can't rescue. He can't restore. He can't save him or her. Faith believes that God created you to be in relationship with him. And, and we trust him through faith that through his son Jesus, that he came to rescue us from our sins once and for all. Your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, right now if you are in Christ. And in Paul's message, faith and repentance are inseparable, and they're two sides of a coin, equal in value, and he was committed to proclaiming this, the gospel message of repenting and believing. And you and I have been given the glorious truth to share that same message with the world, that they should repent and believe. And we should be privileged with that message. We got to stop running away from these things like, ooh, repentance is such a dirty word. Go, God died for your mistakes. No, he died for your sins. Call it what it is. Call a spade a spade. So Paul says we must stand firm on this, stand firm on the truth. And then he also says in verse 24 that we should set an example. And I realize that this is a big, broad idea, this uh, idea of setting an example. So I'm going to do my best to drill down on what I think he's saying to us. So let's read together a big chunk of passage, verse 24 to 35. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if, I, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among, uh, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. If you underline your Bible, underline whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourself and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer or an elder or a pastor to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which was able to build you up and give you the inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said this, it is more blessed to give than receive. Okay, that's a lot of text and there's a lot going on. I'm going to do my best to pull this thread of setting an example for us that Paul is calling the elders of Ephesus to do, but also indirectly calling all of us to do as well. So what does it mean to set an example? Because parents, we say this all the time to your oldest kids, right? Set an example to your younger brothers or sisters. What does that mean? Do I set my example? Do I set a bad example? Do I set a good example? <laughs> like, can you give me some clarity? So what this means is Paul is saying that, listen, I have set the example. I have set the pace. And now I expect you to follow that, to be consistent with that. And this is consistent with Paul's message. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he even gets so specific and says, you come and follow me 
as I follow Christ, right? It's kind of like it's a redirection or a reflection of who Christ is. So what I want us to do is walk through this long passage and just get a little bit specific on some points. And when we say set an example, this is what we mean. First of all, verse 24, I think, is the idea that we set an example that we finish strong. We should set an example to others of how we finish. We tend to, as humans, we don't finish too well, right? You give your two weeks at work and you just check out. You don't give your best. You're like, what are they going to do? Fire me? <laughs> Threat me with a good time, right? So, uh, and you just kind of show up and collect the rest of your paycheck. Or when you're getting close to retirement, we tend to slow down maybe and we don't give it our all. We just kind of hand it off to someone else because we know, hey, uh, 65 is coming. It's coming. I'm going to retire. But we can set an example of how how we finish well. Paul uses this imagery all over his letters, talking about fighting the good fight and finishing the race. And we need to fight the good fight and finish well. And we will set an example for those behind us. I'm not talking about just retirement here. Uh, another way that we can set an example is by being faithful in, with our integrity. In verse 25 to 27, we see this integrity idea present. Paul knew he was called by God. He knew who called him. And because he knew his calling, he was bold. He was courageous. And he was committed to preach the whole counsel of God. What does that mean? It means that he's not just going to teach one side of the coin. He's going to teach both sides of the coin. He's going to teach both sides and commit to teaching both Jew and Gentile. And where you see this come to fruition in his letter to the Romans. Romans systematically walks you through the whole counsel of God. And I encourage you to spend time in that book because I think Romans is perhaps the most exhaustive explanation on, on the whole counsel of God that Paul had wrote. And it's my goal one day to preach it, but we're just going to make sure we do it well. And Paul was proven to be integral in this area. And we too are called to be integral in our walk with God. I heard explained once about integrity, that integrity is like a bridge. We expect a bridge to have integrity all the time. If I'm driving over a bridge at 2 a.m., I don't want to be falling down into the water, right? It should be, has integrity all the time. And just like you as a Christian, your walk after Christ should have integrity, not just on Sunday morning, not just at life group, not just when you see church folk, but every day behind closed doors, when your, parent, when your kids see you, that mom and dad are the same at church that they are at home. You should have integrity all the time in your walk with Christ. We then in verse 24, sorry, 28 to 32, we see that we can set an example by fighting the good fight. He's saying, he's warning them, he's saying, hey guys, warn, warn your, or guard yourself. Keep in mind the specific statement to pastors of the church, right? Interesting, the word pastor is never used as a noun in the New Testament like we use it as. It's never used as a title like, hey, that's Pastor Aaron. They would never say that in the New Testament. But it has become that over time that we commonly accept the title as elder or overseer as pastor because it's an imagery of a shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and the pastor is also to come along and care for you just like the good shepherd would. We are under shepherds to the good shepherd, and we are to guide and protect the flock, not just me, but all the elders that we vote in. So this is the imagery that Paul is illustrating here. He's giving them a warning like, hey, I need you to be aware Preach the whole counsel of God. Commit to both sides of the coin because there's going to come from you and from the outside wolves 
who are going to tear you apart. There's going to be men and women who rise up in your church and start preaching doctrines that sound right, but they're twisted and they're going to lead people astray. So be careful, be on guard. That's the job of us as elders at this church. We're not just a a policy board. We're not just passing decisions. We are protecting this church from theological error, from, from wolves who come in in sheep clothing, from men and women who rise up within our ranks who are, are, have, have malicious intents. And then we also make decisions, but that sounds cooler, okay? But uh, it extends further than that as well. If you're a dad or you're a husband, we often call you the pastor of your home. The Bible lays you out as the spiritual head of your house. And the culture is making war against male headship, but that is what the Bible states. And this is the word of God. And we must believe it. So dads, you are the pastors of your home. Matthew Henry, he calls your home. It should be a mini church. Are you on guard as a husband? Are you on guard as a dad? Are you aware of the dangers that are around? Are you protecting and shielding your family? I'm not just talking about from physical danger. I'm talking about spiritual dangers, emotional dangers, theological dangers. Are you aware of what your family is consuming, what they're reading, what they're watching, what they're learning? Are you rightly dividing the word of truth before your children and your wife? Are you guarding your home? It's your job as a husband. That's your job as a dad. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This is what it means to be a man of God. And if that's not you, men, it's time to man up and be the man that God has called you to be, to assume this role and to protect your family. I would say that verse 28 is both a theological and practical apex of this passage because it says this, care for the church that was obtained by what? The blood of of Christ. So here's the practical implication. You who are sitting in these chairs, you are, as we like to call, the hands and feet of Jesus. You're the caretakers of this church, but we can also connect this to your home. You are the caretakers of your home. And Paul is saying, I need you to care for and guard both practically and theologically what Jesus has purchased and entrusted to you. It's all his. And you're guarding and protecting what is his. He has bought it and he has paid for it with his blood. Your family is his, and you are to guard it because he has paid for them with a high price. Mothers too, you're not off the hook. You, as you nurture and raise your children, you are to point them to Christ. You are to guard them with your minds, with scripture, and filtering what they see and hear, and be praying for them, and speaking words of promise and truth over them. What a heavy weight and responsibility that is. And if you're here and you're single, you don't have a family, you don't have a spouse, you also need to be on guard for your home. What are you bringing in? What are you putting before you? What are you allowing to master you? Be on guard. Why? Because we have to realize that we have an enemy who scripture says and describes as a roaring lion, roaming to and fro, looking for those to devour. Fight the fight. Be on guard. Be men and women of God. Paul continues on in verse 33 to 35. We see that we can set an example by, uh, by giving through hard work. No one could ever accuse Paul for not working hard. He was not a lazy man. He had a strong worth ethic. He was always on the go. He was all, and he also seemingly had a healthy relationship with material things. And that just begs the question, do we have a healthy relationship with with material things? Or have they become our idols? 
Have we become mastered by them? Or can we say like Paul that, hey, I don't covet your gold or silver. I don't covet your clothing, your apparel, your cars, your computers, whatever we have today. We must find our identity and satisfaction in Christ, not in idols and not in material things. And Paul's advice for us, if we are mastered by material things, here's the virtue that you can replace that vice with, generosity. He says it's better to give than to receive. And that's not just his words, that's the words of our Savior. And this isn't just talking about money. I think we always confuse that. We hear give and we're like, oh, they want money. No, this is talking about your time. This is talking about your skills, your focus, etc. This is talking about showing up. Let's be known for our generosity here at FBC and not for materialistic things, not for just making a name out for ourselves. And lastly, as I close, the last point is sad goodbyes. Nobody likes to say goodbye. Let's see how Paul is treated in this moment in verse 36 to 38. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Goodbyes are hard. I used to watch this show called Hello, Goodbye. It's standing in the Toronto airport. And he would interview people saying goodbye to their loved ones. And I can watch like horrible things like people dying on TV and whatnot. I'm like, oh, that sucks. But that, I was like, who's cutting onions in this room, man? Like it just, it just hits you to your heart because saying goodbye is hard, especially when you think you're not gonna see that person again like we see here. Last year, I flew home for a family wedding and I only got to spend a couple days and I, I saw my Oma who was in her mid-80s and I, and, I, and I hugged her and I just broke down crying. Because I don't know if I'm getting back to Ontario anytime soon. I don't know if I'm ever going to see her again before she passes. And it's hard to say goodbye. And this is what we see here with Paul. Paul understood that. He understood that this was not only just hard for him, but this was hard for these elders who loved Paul, who he trained. So he makes this a special moment. He's teaching them that the, in these hard moments, when God is leading us away from things and maybe saying goodbye to things, that it's hard but we need to surrender and trust God. And he shows the surrender by kneeling with all these elders and they kneel with him in a mutual sign of surrender to God and humility before the people. So even in goodbye, Paul and the other pastors who come to Ephesus to meet him are acknowledging together their mutual trust. Like, hey, this is hard. I'm gonna miss you, Paul, but I know this is God's will. And this is where it trickles down. I, if I acknowledge and yield to the authority and power that is greater than mine, if I trust his sovereign plan, then I will trust his will, and then I will trust his timing, and then I will live with humility, allowing him always to guide me and direct me and master me. And that has been the attitude and position of Paul in this moment, and that should be our attitude and position in life. So what does all this mean? Well, I want to ask you to consider to accept these challenges from Paul, to set an example. And we can do this by reflecting on just a few questions together. So let's just reflect on these. Are you living a life in such a way that others could follow your example and become more like Christ? Could others look at you and say, hey, I see how you're living for Jesus. I want to model that. And I can model that. Because Paul could say that. He didn't make it so hard to reach that no one could do it. Perhaps you and I could do the same. 
And this is especially true for parents, but it should also be true for everybody. As believers who are consistently working to build and send others, does our commitment to make disciples allow us to multiply myself and others to reproduce God-fearing, humble servants? Or if you were to reproduce yourself, would you just reproduce selfish complainers who are never getting anything done for the kingdom of God? Or maybe you have never stepped into a relationship with God. For you, I point you to the same truth that Paul would, to the two-sided coin. You must repent of your sins and you must believe on Christ for salvation. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So for those of us who have put our trust in God, The question is, do we submit daily to his authority? Do we allow him to control us in every way? Controlling and influencing the way that you and I spend our time, spend our money, how we disciple and discipline our children, everything. Do we allow him to influence and control all aspects of our life? These are questions that we should ponder. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hard words of scripture. They're not always easy to swallow, but Lord, they're necessary to look at. Father, as we look into the perfect mirror of scripture, we should not see condemnation, but we will see spots in our life that we are failing to surrender to you. And Father, we know that through your grace and power that you can empower us to continue to surrender those areas to you, Father. And I ask that you would do so. And Father, that you would give us willing hearts to do so. Father, as we all together as a church try to set an example for each other and for the world, Lord, will we do it unto your name and not unto our name, not unto selfish ambitions or anything like that, but Father, mutually together, glorifying your name. And Father, for the husbands and wives in this room who have this major charge of raising their kids as God fears, Father, would you give us the ability and wisdom to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.